Well, I'm privileged to meditate on the Word of God with you today. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're going to be in the first 27 verses of John chapter 11. Today and next Sunday, we're going to revisit a familiar passage in John John's Gospel, this amazing story where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. We're getting ready for Easter. It's only two weeks away. I can't believe that. It seems like yesterday it was Christmas, and here we are preparing for Easter. But this passage we're going to be in today is a perfect one for us to prepare for the cross and the empty tomb. You might remember Pastor Kavakis' excellent series on the Gospel of John a year or so ago called Light in the Darkness. He showed us how the Gospel of John is to... Uh, the goal of it is to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. At the beginning of his gospel, John asserts this in John chapter 1, in him was life, that is, in Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome. And then at the end of his gospel, John makes it clear there's a point to all these amazing things that he's written about Jesus, that all the miracles that Jesus performed prove his claims to be the Son of God. And therefore, there are signs that we should believe. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he states his purpose for writing. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So not only do the miracles of Jesus prove his own claims about himself, but in proving who he is, Christ is confronting us with a question that every single one of us has to answer. Do we believe? This question is at the heart of today's passage, but it isn't a, just a question about what Jesus did. It's also a question about Christ himself. But it's an easy question for us to overlook when we think of this astonishing event, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We remember the miracle more than we do the question, don't we? But when we read these 44 verses carefully, we discover that the focus of our belief isn't in the miracles that Jesus does. The object of our belief is Jesus, who delivers an even greater miracle, the miracle of eternal life in the kingdom of God. It's a little bit like this. You know, if the, just to, we got to, since it's spring, we have to bring up a baseball example. If the Nationals win the World Series this year, and I hope they do, I'll be happy not just because a team wins, but because the team that I put my trust in wins. So our Christian belief is more about who and not what. The what only verifies who we believe. The verb believe appears seven times in the story of Lazarus. Five of those are in our portion today in the first 27 verses. And in case you're wondering, it appears 48 times in the 20 chapters that comprise the Gospel of John. And so it's obvious that our belief is important to God because believing God is what saved people do, right? The lost don't believe him. Belief is about Jesus, not just in what he does. His miracles are important, but their purpose is to verify who Jesus is, to move us from unbelief to belief in him. Belief in Jesus is to place our trust in him. Unbelief is to reject Jesus. 
And that's exactly what we see in the Jewish leaders and all of the chapters leading up to this episode with Lazarus. Ever since chapter 5, the Jews have been wanting to kill Jesus, and their venom only increases with every miracle and every word that proceeds from the mouth of our Lord. And then finally, in chapter 10, Jesus makes some claims that just stun the Jews in Jerusalem. They ask him if he's really the Messiah. John chapter 10, verses 25 and 26, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Belief is about Jesus. It's about believing him. I told you, and you didn't believe me. Of course, the Jews don't dispute that the miracles happen. It's just that they disagree that they bear witness about who Jesus is. Jesus has unrolled the scrolls of Scripture to show the Jews who he is. He's verified his claims with miracles, but the Jews just don't believe Jesus. And they don't believe him either when he says in verse 30 of chapter 10, I and the Father are one. Jesus is claiming to be God, and that's blasphemy to the Jewish leaders, so they want to kill him. And so after Jesus raises Lazarus, they begin in earnest to perfect their plot to kill Jesus, and we know the rest of the story. That's why Jesus brings up believing so many times in our passage today. Jesus wants us to understand that to receive his blessings, we've got to believe in who he is. We must believe him, and not just the red letters in our Bibles either, but every single word of Scripture, because all of Scripture is about our Lord. But the Jewish leaders refused to believe that the Scriptures were speaking of Jesus. Many of the people in the crowds who witnessed Jesus doing amazing things believed in his miraculous powers, and my goodness, they wanted more miracles, but they weren't particularly interested in Jesus himself. The, the zealots, well, they saw in Jesus a political Messiah who would rescue the Jews from the oppressive Romans. But they had an awfully hard time fathoming a Messiah who would rescue them from their sins. All of this is at the heart of the question that Jesus is going to ask Martha today in our passage. Do you believe this? This question is a pertinent one, whether we call ourselves Christians or not, because our temptation might be to approach Jesus like we do a potluck dinner. We heap on our plates all the things that we like, and we leave behind the things that we don't, and there's no compliments to the chef. We might not even know who the chef is. And this is exactly what people did when Jesus walked on the earth. We can be enthralled by his miracles, but not really interested in trusting Jesus especially when he chooses not to heal, not to answer our prayers in the way we want him to. We can also forget the sheer power of Christ to save and forgive sins when we lean too much on the letter of the law, thinking like a Pharisee that somehow it's the law that saves us. We can also be tempted to, to recreate Jesus into a political hero. It's just He's going to save our nation. He's going to save our culture but we plug our own ears regarding our personal need to be saved and sanctified by him. And so as we approach Easter, it's a good time to consider our own answer to the question, do you believe this? And so as we begin our journey today toward the terrible beauty of the cross and the overwhelming joy of an empty tomb, Jesus is going to teach us this 
And this is the big idea of our passage today. We must believe Jesus. It isn't enough just to believe things about Christ, to believe mere statements about Christ. We must believe him. Believing him means that we receive Christ as he presents himself to us. And who does Jesus say he is? He says that he's the resurrection and the life. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah. That's what believing is all about. And so today we'll be covering the first half or so of this remarkable event, the first 27 verses of chapter 11. Next week we'll cover the rest of the verses, all the way through verse 44. But here's how John tells the story in verses 1 through 27. We can divide it up into three sections. The first section is in verses 1 through 4, where we see an urgent need, and we meet two very worried sisters, Mary and Martha, and also their very sick brother, Lazarus. And then in the second section, in verses 5 through 16, we see that Lazarus dies, and yet Jesus is glad. We'll take a look at that when we get there. But then in our third section, in verses 17 through 27, we see, from our perspective anyway, that Jesus is terribly late, but he comes with a powerful promise. Well, we read our passage a few minutes ago, so let's go ahead and dig in and begin in verses 1 through 4 in our first section where we see an urgent need. These verses just introduce us to the people who are involved. In verse 1, we learn that Lazarus of Bethany is sick. Bethany is a little less than two miles from Jerusalem. It's also where his sisters Mary and Martha live. And interestingly, John identifies Mary with a reference to an event that doesn't even happen until the beginning of the next chapter. And that's because she is so well known already for her beautiful expression of faith when she anoints Jesus with oil and wipes his feet with her hair that by the time John writes his gospel, this is how she's identified. And so that's who Mary is. Martha is Mary's sister, and she's the one who is serving, uh, distracted, who is distracted with much serving in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus came to her house. We remember that story well, and that's who Mary and Martha are. In verse 3 of our passage, they send for Jesus. They want him to come quickly because their brother Lazarus is so sick. They've seen Jesus heal other people, and they're sure that Jesus can heal their brother. But when the Lord hears the news, he says something that seems a little surprising, especially in light of the fact that we know what happens later on in this story. In verse 4, he says that when he heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Well, we know that Lazarus does die in verse 14. Jesus says so himself. So what in the world does Jesus mean by saying this illness does not lead to death? Jesus is saying that the reason for Lazarus' death is not to end his life, but so that Christ could restore it. Jesus saw it as a temporary death. The miracle of restoring his life would bring glory to God and to God's Son, Jesus himself. The miracle is also a sign of something even greater than God's power to restore physical life. It's a sign of his power to restore spiritually dead sinners like you and me to new life. And that happens through God's sacrifice and uh, and the resurrection of his own son. 
And when the father, of course, exalts his son to his right hand. What's happening here to Lazarus prepares us to understand the rest of Jesus' ministry and what Jesus means when he says in his high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's arrested. In John 17, verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And so as Jesus receives word about Lazarus, he's beginning to reveal that his own death and resurrection will be for the glory of God. And the greatest miracle of all will be the cross and the empty tomb, which will bring about eternal restoration of sinners like you and me to God. Jesus is preparing his disciples for that moment. And this leads us to our second section, which explains not only why Lazarus dies, but also why Jesus is glad that he does. And our second section is, uh, verses 5 through 16, Lazarus dies and yet Jesus is glad. In these verses, there are two things going on. The first is Jesus' relationship with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. They're his dear friends, as we find out in verse 5. The second is his conversation with his disciples. But all of it has to do with Lazarus being sick and what Jesus is going to do about it and ultimately what it proves about himself. In verses 5 and 6, we see some behavior in Jesus that seems a little troubling. On the one hand, he loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But in verse 6, instead of hurrying to his friend's side, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What's up with that? Would you do that if a dear friend was in the hospital dying? None of us would. We'd hurry to their side and pray for them and comfort them and comfort their family. A dear friend of mine died several years ago, and as he lay in a coma in the hospital, his family and his friends and I, we kept a vigil at the hospital. I even took time off from work so I could be there, and we were there until the very end. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus tarries. He doesn't come right away. Where is he? He's on the other side of the Jordan River, about 20 miles away in the neighborhood of the Red Oval on your screen. He and his disciples had retreated there after the Jews had tried to stone him at the end of chapter 10. A good walker like Jesus could cover that distance in a day. So why in the world did he wait? Well, we're going to understand that a little more clearly soon, but Jesus has already told us why in verse 4. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Well, there's a good sentence for us to remember. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. How often have we felt that God is taking too long? How often do we try to get God to hurry up? God, I know that you have the power to fix this, but why in the world aren't you? Would you hurry up, please? But Jesus says it's for the glory of God. And not only that, Jesus is waiting because he loves this family. He knows that their faith is going to be strengthened when they see him glorified. And so sometimes we've got to wait for God. And when we do, we see his glory. We grow in our faith and we become stronger in the Lord. And so Jesus waits for two more days. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 7 that it's time to go back to Judea, right back into the Jerusalem area, into the midst of all of the hostility of the Jews who want to kill him. In verse 8, his disciples aren't, aren't particularly anxious to comply with his wishes. 
Why in the world do you want to go back there again, Lord? They just want to see you dead. And so Jesus answers with a proverbial saying to which he adds a deeper meaning in verses 9 and 10. And he says, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Well, on its face, this saying means that as long as the sun is shining, people can go about their business and carry on their duties and get their work done. But as soon as it gets dark, it's time to stop for the night. They didn't have street lights everywhere and floodlights and flashlights and so on. They had to stop because it was dark. What Jesus means is that as long as the Father wills, he'll continue his ministry. God's will is the equivalent to daylight in this proverbial saying. Jesus can continue safely and no harm is going to come to him as long as the Father wills. But according to God's will, the time is coming soon when the night will fall and when the earthly work of Christ must end. And when night falls, he must face death. Well, this tells us that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what's going to happen to him. There'll be no surprises for Jesus. He knows that the cross is coming soon. And neither will Jesus be surprised when he arrives in Bethany to find Lazarus very, very dead. In verse 11, Jesus uses a euphemism to explain to his disciples that Lazarus is dead. He's fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. His disciples misunderstand in verses 12 and 13. Well, if he's asleep, well, then he's going to wake back up and, and then, Lord, you'll be able to minister to him just like you've ministered to so many others. But Jesus clarifies in verses 14 and 15. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Lazarus is dead, and Jesus is glad. He's glad, at least he's glad that he didn't get to Bethany before he died. That's because Jesus knows what he's going to do and how it'll cause his disciples to believe. And this brings together the glory of God and Christ with our faith. God is glorified not only when he performs physical miracles, but he's most glorified when we believe when our rebellious souls are transformed and we put our trust in Christ. And so Jesus says it's time to go to Lazarus. But Thomas speaks maybe for all of the disciples when he says in verse 16, let us go also that we may die with him. Well, there's loyalty to Lazarus in this statement, but there's also a good bit of dejection and pessimism He's figuring, you see, that since the Jews are so hostile to Jesus that anything that happens to the Lord is going to happen to all of them, including being killed if it comes to that. And so let's gather with the pessimistic and and dejected disciples and let's go to Bethany with Jesus and see what happens. And this leads us to our third section in verses 17 through 27 where Jesus, from our perspective, is terribly late but he comes with a powerful promise. As we arrive, we find that Lazarus is not only dead, but that he's been dead for four days. 
The Jews buried people on the day of their death. Tradition held that the spirit of a dead person would kind of hover around for three days just in case there was a way for it to return to the body. That was the tradition. But this is the fourth day. And so by all accounts, Lazarus is good and dead. His body is rapidly decomposing. It is beyond repair. And then in verses 18 and 19, we find that in the days since Lazarus died, people have gathered to mourn and to console Martha and Mary. And among their number are many Jews from nearby Jerusalem, probably some of whom are ones who want to kill Jesus. In verse 20, when she hears that the Lord is on his way, Martha, true to her character of being a doer, She goes out to meet Jesus outside of town, but Mary stays at home. She's seated in the house. This is the traditional place of vigilant mourning. She and her family and her friends are grieving deeply. In verse 21, we hear the distress in Martha's voice when she meets Jesus on the road, and she says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This isn't a rebuke of Jesus. She trusts in Jesus' power to heal. In Luke, we read about how Jesus is raised from the dead, a widow's son, and Jairus' daughter, but those miracles occur right after death. Lazarus is long gone. And so if Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, this would be the miracle of miracles. Martha just wishes the circumstances could have been different, but the inevitable has come. It's like what we might say, I wish I'd gotten to the doctor sooner. But now that four days have passed, Martha knows it's just got to be too late for Jesus to repeat his miracles with the widow's son and with Jairus' daughter. But you know, if we start doing the math here, We start to realize that Jesus has known that Lazarus was dead all along, all the way even back when word originally came to him that he was sick. Jesus' friend probably died while the messenger was on his one-day journey to tell him. But Jesus knew supernaturally that Lazarus had died. So Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick on day number one, but he knows already that he's dead. Jesus waits two days, and that makes Three days. So we're on day three, and Jesus hikes for a day to Bethany on the fourth day. And he finds in Bethany the family and the friends who are racked with grief, and his friend Lazarus is sealed up in a tomb. And so let's pause here and revisit those moments when we feel like that God is taking too long. In our despair, we might feel like that God is unaware of our pain. We might feel as though we've got to convince God to do something about it. But now in our story here, we realize that Jesus is known all along and that he allowed the pain of Lazarus' family because he had a plan, a plan that would bring glory to himself and a deeper faith for those whom he loves. But it was going to happen on his schedule and not theirs. That's the blessing in waiting for God, isn't it? He glorifies himself in ways that we cannot imagine. And it deepens our faith as he does so. Well, raising a four-day-old corpse from the dead is certainly beyond Martha's imagination. 
So she says in verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She's not expecting a miracle here, but she does have a great deal of confidence in Jesus' relationship with the Father. She's resigned to her brother's death, but somehow, somehow, Jesus is going to minister to her and to Mary. And Lazarus will be okay in the world to come. And that's our attitude sometimes, isn't it? From our perspective, all we see is a terrible situation, just like Martha, and we're resigned to it. And we say, well, God's going to make the most of it somehow, I guess. So as we look at our lives, you know, we don't get the promotion at work, even though we've prayed about it. A loved one dies, a friend abandons us. We can all come up with a long list of disappointments and trials and heartaches in life. And we can't imagine that God is really in total control, that he wants these circumstances for his glory and our gain. And so with Martha, we end up missing the greatness of our God because our focus becomes on our circumstances instead of on him. We see Martha's attitude in the conversation that follows. Jesus says something that would have startled Mary if she understood it. In verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. We read this with hindsight. And hindsight tells us that, that what Jesus is saying tells us that he is going to raise him from the dead literally. But Martha doesn't grasp this. And so she and Jesus, they're just talking right past each other. In verse 24, she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's thinking of her end times doctrine and theology. She's solid in her understanding of eschatology and the last things. She agrees with the popular theology of her day. She's distinctly not of the Sadducees camp who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. She sides with the Pharisees doctrine of the afterlife. She knows her stuff. She really does. But she doesn't understand the most important thing. She can't see who Jesus is. And one of my commentaries declares, Jesus had been in actuality an unknown person to her. And so Jesus sets her straight, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die." Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Those have to be some of those beautiful words in all of Scripture. I am the resurrection and the life. That's what Jesus wants Martha to believe. Her belief should be about him, not just in what he does, Jesus is waking Martha up to the fact that she's standing face to face with the resurrection himself and with life himself. Jesus is moving Martha from an abstract, vague idea of hope to a profoundly personal one based on a deep trust of Jesus, a trust which Jesus is about to prove that he is immensely worthy of when he does the impossible to raise his very dead friend and when he rises himself on the third day. And he no longer needs the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had loaned him. 
I am the resurrection and the life. This is an extraordinary declaration that Jesus is making. It's the fifth of seven I am statements that he makes in John's gospel. Uh, In chapter six, he says, I am the bread of life. Chapters eight and nine, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. In chapter 10, I am the resurrection and the life right here in our passage. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In chapter 14, I am the true vine. Chapter 15, this is I am in its absolute sense in the same way that God reveals who he is to Moses in Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus is explicitly identifying himself with God. He's asserting that he is eternal and self-existent. That is, he's not created. He doesn't depend on any higher power. He is unchanging and he is the presence of God on the earth. That's exactly what the Jews consistently hear each time Jesus says, I am, in this sense, and it's why they want to kill him. They reject that it's true, even though the scriptures speak of Christ, even though he proves over and over with scripture and signs and wonders that he is, I am. And here's I am standing in front of Martha. Can you imagine that? I can't. But I can't imagine being like Martha, not quite comprehending what Jesus is saying to me because it's almost too wonderful to fathom. And yet she doesn't have the cross and the empty tomb to look back upon to be able to comprehend what the resurrection and the life really mean. But Jesus is the resurrection. He will become living proof of the resurrection. Raising Lazarus from the dead is a picture of how the father will raise his son from the dead. And listen to what Paul says about it in Romans 6, 5 and what it means for us. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That means that we'll rise from the dead just like Jesus and our bodies will be glorified just like his was. And we're going to live in eternity with our Lord in the new heaven and the new earth. You know, they say only two things in life are certain death and taxes. We all pay taxes and we will all die a natural death. But Jesus leads the way. He says, render under Caesar's what is Caesar's. But he says to death, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus is the resurrection. He is the guarantee of our place in the kingdom of God. Yet to receive that glory, we've got to believe what Jesus says about himself because we cannot get to God in any other way. In John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We must believe in Jesus. We must believe Jesus' own words. We must put our trust in Jesus. He is the resurrection and he is also the life. He is the fulfillment and certainty of life in the kingdom of God. Real life, brothers and sisters, is fellowship with God. That's what real life is. Death is no fellowship with God. Real life is fellowship with God. 
And so Jesus is declaring that we will no longer be dead in our sins after he has died, after this picture of what is happening to Martha's brother becomes the reality of the cross. And our life in God's kingdom begins the very moment we believe what Christ says about himself, the moment we put our trust in him. And our life with him will never, ever end. But we cannot have either resurrection into God's eternal kingdom or life now in his kingdom without believing Christ. Because if he is not God, there is no resurrection and there is no life. And so Jesus asks Martha, do you believe this? And Martha answers in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, some people assert that Martha's confession is a true affirmation of faith, a complete one, but others say that it falls short. It's hard to tell. But a look at the context seems to me to indicate that she doesn't yet fully grasp what the Lord is telling her. In verse 39, when she reminds Jesus that Lazarus' body stinketh, as the King James Bible puts it, it stinketh after four days in the tomb. That seems to legitimately imply that there's some doubt on her part about who Jesus is and about his ability to revive her brother. I tend to think that Martha couldn't have fully understood what Jesus was saying. She believes that Jesus is the Christ, but she can't yet fully comprehend what exactly that means. Realizing who Jesus is must have been kind of like waking up from a really long, deep sleep. You know how it is. You're disoriented and confused and discombobulated. You don't know where you are. It takes a while to to wake up fully and to be able to see clearly and recognize the room that you're in. And you know, a lot of us have had salvation experiences like this. It takes a while for, for it to sink in. Well, Jesus compared Lazarus' physical death to sleep, and he said, I go to awaken him. And I believe that Lazarus isn't the only one Jesus wakes up in this story. I think this may be the moment when Christ jolts Martha awake from her spiritual sleep or spiritual death, really. And she's not going to be fully awake until that beautiful day when Mary Magdalene and the others hurry back from Jesus' tomb with the glorious news that it's empty. But as Martha wakes up from her spiritual slumber, she'll begin to experience Jesus in a new and profound way. You know, we talked about Romania a few minutes ago uh, before the sermon, but before I went to Romania last year, I'd only seen pictures of the place. I'd only met Pastor Ovidio. He was the pastor from Romania. That's all really who he was. I couldn't really know him that well from his short visits. But it wasn't until I actually went to Romania myself and walked with Brother Ovidio and his team on their own turf that I was able to truly understand his life and experiences. Pictures on a screen couldn't do that. And even his powerful presentations about his ministry couldn't do it. Being there is what made Romania and the ministry there real to me. And that's, that's a lot of what it's like with Jesus. We can recognize Jesus on the pages of our Bibles and we can hear the amazing things that he did. 
But it's not until the Holy Spirit wakes us up to the reality of who he is that we begin to truly experience Jesus and to become immersed in him. But for now, for now, Martha's confection is hesitant and uncertain, unsure. The Messiah she sees is still one who's merely a miracle worker. Although she understands Jesus to be the Son of God, the language that she uses is similar to those who question Jesus along the way during his ministry. People who are still trying to figure him out, sort out who this man is who does these amazing things. In John 6, 14, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is coming to the world. That's only part of the answer. And so like the people, Martha isn't ready yet to use the language of the opening verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That, brothers and sisters, is what it means to believe. That is what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. So as we remember the big idea of what Jesus is saying, this is what we can take home with us today. We must believe Jesus it isn't enough just to believe things about Jesus. We've got to believe him. And believing him means that we receive Jesus in the same way that he presents himself to us. And who is Jesus? He says so himself. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. I am. That's what believing is about. That's who believing is about. And when we believe in Jesus in this way, that's when we become immersed in him and we begin to live for him and we become instruments of his glory as his light shines in this dark world. And so as we consider the question, do you believe this, we're compelled to answer whether we desire to be, to be immersed in the work and the person of Christ. If we want his miracles but cannot take him at his word, then really what we're really saying is that Jesus is a liar and therefore we reject the resurrection and the life that he claims to be. If we want his teaching but not his divinity, then we reject salvation and eternal hope. And if we want doctrine and theology but want no part of the power of Christ, then we're as lost as a Pharisee. But when we take Jesus at his word and become immersed in his divinity and his lordship, we receive the hope that, God, that Christ promises now and forevermore so that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen and amen.